Scripture reading this morning is going to come from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Good morning. All right, remember that just in a couple of weeks, Mike Vesta will be with us for our gospel meeting. Uh, his theme for that is liberty in Jesus and his gospel, and he'll be preaching from the book of Galatians for that. So please invite your family, your friends, your neighbors, and plan on joining us from September 17th through the 20th, if I have those dates right. So it'll, it'll be a wonderful time. You'll be glad that you attended. In Galatians 5, 22 through 23, among the qualities named under the collective singular fruit of the Spirit is peace. This is broad at first glance. We first understand that God desires for us to have peace with him. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is also the case that God desires for us to have peace within ourselves, a peace that is only both possible and right when we have peace with him. We're told, for instance, in Philippians 4 and verse 7, that when we pray through our worry, the peace of God, that which surpasses all understanding, will protect your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There are a few more ways the term for peace is used in the New Testament, but I only want us to focus on one other meaning. God also desires for us to have peace with others. I want us to turn back to Galatians 5, but not to the fruit of the Spirit quite yet. Look at verses 19 through 21 as Paul discusses the works of the flesh there. Verses 19 through 21. He says, The works of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfishness, dissension, factions, Envy, drunkenness, revelries, and things like these. Of all these, notice how many of them cause or perpetuate damage to relationships. Most of these could apply in some way, but we ought to particularly notice enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfishness, dissensions, factions, and envy. Do, do we see this in verses 20 through 21? Strife, for example, always concerns more than one person. These are two or more people that are involved in some kind of a conflict. Jealousy usually deals with someone coveting what another person has. Outbursts of anger tend to harm other people. These examples could continue, but know that all these particular works of the flesh have one thing in common that's relevant to our lesson, especially today. They oppose peace. Now, let us be reminded then of the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 through 23. If you go back to reading those, we're probably on our way to having those memorized if we don't have them memorized already. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice here that many of these are intertwined by their nature. It's hard to separate them entirely, just as it is difficult to separate the works of the flesh entirely. Yet notice that the fruit of the Spirit does not harm peace 
but helps it. Apart from peace being explicitly mentioned, that's what we're talking about today, note how love, patience, and kindness, among others, they naturally produce that. There are many ways the term for peace is used in the New Testament, but here it seems that Paul is focusing on our peace with other people. As such, we ought to understand that our peace with others is important to God. It is not something that we can overlook. The world has enough conflict as it is. We're supposed to make some kind of a difference in this world. Us Christians must be different. Observe with me then that peace is vital to our identity, our righteousness, and our harmony. Peace is vital to our identity, righteousness, and our harmony. It's through those three points we'll be getting our lesson today. Peace is, first of all, vital to our identity as Christians. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, among the Beatitudes, are our foundation in this regard. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be regarded as sons of God. Jesus gives a blessing to peacemakers here, that they will be close to God as his children. A peacemaker is one who cultivates peace and really prioritizes reconciliation. This is the type of person who seeks to be at peace with others at all times. Yet again, we understand that we are not simply characterized by a peace given to us by God, though that's certainly true, but we are also characterized by the peace we ought to bring about with others. So Christians, it's on us. We must take the initiative to be peacemakers in order to have the blessing that God promises. But Matthew 5 and verse 9 is our foundation. There are several other passages that discuss this. We ought to also heed the words of James 3, 13 through 18, for instance. After James commands Christians to bridle their tongues, there are certain things that shouldn't be coming from a Christian's mouth, James says. But after this, he discusses the wisdom from above. And I want you to notice this entire section, verses 13 through 18, before we make observations from it. Verses 13 through 18 of James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By good conduct, he must demonstrate his works in the humility of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition are, there is unruliness in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to comply, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And fruit or a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who bring about peace. We ought to appreciate that in more ways than one, peace is crucial to this passage. Note that thematically, this is structured similarly to Galatians 5, 19-23. We first see that James is posing this rhetorical question of who is wise and understanding among them, showing that there was perhaps some rivalry or contention among the Jewish Christians to whom he was writing. But James then says that heavenly wisdom is not found in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition from verse 14. And then if the importance of this was not clear to us the first time that James mentioned it, he mentions it again in verse 16, jealousy and selfish ambition. The only thing that's missing here is the word for bitter. That's just not here this time, but the point is reiterated to make it even clearer to us. Jealousy and selfish ambition both concern our relationships with others and truthfully harm those relationships. 
It's at this point that James shows that the wisdom from above, uh, these, these, these qualities, the fruit of the Spirit, that similar to the fruit of the Spirit, that help our relationships with other people. Note that the explicit mention of the fact that we are to be peaceable speaks for itself, right? But we are also supposed to be gentle, willing to comply, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Our peace with others is sustained by having hearts filled with gentleness, humility, mercy, and sincerity. I repeat these simply for our remembrance. James says, concluding that point in verse 18, that the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who bring about peace. Peace is central to this passage. And so I want us to consider how this ties into our identity. Through this, we are far more than people who can be rightly identified as wise and understanding, per verse 13. That's not the only point that James wants to get across to us. That's not our only goal in having the wisdom from above. No, we become those characterized by heavenly wisdom, people with whom God is pleased. Christians ought to be known for exemplifying the wisdom from above in every interaction and in every conversation. Christians, our identity is one that ought to be characterized by peace. It's not optional. It's a requirement if we're going to be people that God is pleased with. It's a requirement if we are to be Christians. Again, it is vital to our identity. Secondly, notice that peace is vital to our righteousness. Peace is vital to our righteousness. We cannot be seen. I really want to emphasize cannot be seen as holy, righteous, and God-honoring people if we neglect peace. After writing about the discipline of the Lord, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 exhorts Christians to be strengthened and determined. But I want us to really note Hebrews 12 and verse 14. And what he says there is simple. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And the grammar does seem to indicate that this lack of holiness is what keeps people from seeing the Lord, but that does not negate the importance of that peace with everyone. It's mentioned in the exact same sentence, I think, for a reason. It's still tied to our righteousness. It's still tied to who we, to who we are as the holy people of God. Hebrews 12, 14 is paramount and so simple, but it gets the point across incredibly well. But another passage worth our consideration is in 1 Peter. Submission has been a clear theme in 1 Peter 2 and 3. It's, we see early on in chapter 2 that citizens are to submit to governments. We see later that servants are to submit to masters and that wives are to submit to husbands in chapter 3. Of course, it's important to recognize that the text nowhere indicates that governments, masters, and husbands are all grouped as equals, so to speak. Nor does it indicate that they are all perfect individuals for which this submission is easy. What I mean bluntly is that husbands are not masters. We shouldn't act that way. But... I want us to also note that the repetition of the term for submit or be subject shouldn't be taken to say that that submission looks exactly the same in every relationship, in all three of these distinct relationships. It's also key to notice that in the case of husbands, Peter rather explicitly tells these husbands to in the same way or likewise live with their, lives, with their wives knowledgeably since they are co-heirs to God's grace and failure to do so hinders their prayers. In verse 7, it's a little bit off, off track, but I want us to notice that. I want us to bear all of that in mind when reading verses 8 through 12. That's what we're going to do right now, verses 8 through 12. 
Finally, everyone, be like-minded, sympathetic, having brotherly love, compassionate, humble, not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, because for this you were called, in order that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep the tongue from evil and the lips to not speak deceit, and let him cease from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears to their prayer, and the face of the Lord against those who do evil. Peter begins by mentioning qualities that, again, lead to peace. You may be noticing some repetition here. Being like-minded, sympathetic, having brotherly love, compassionate, humble, and being forgiving, these all lead undebatably, unequivocally to peace. If we bless, the scriptures say we will likewise be blessed. And so he then references Psalm 34, 12 through 16, keeping one's tongue from evil and one's lips from deceit. Don't those things benefit the people around us? Don't those things beget peace themselves? When we keep our tongues away from evil, we keep our tongues away from lies, people are able to trust us. They're able to count on us to do good. But the passage is also explicit, yet again, in saying that we are to seek peace and pursue it. And it is based on the fact that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. In other words, the eyes of the Lord are on those who follow this conduct of peaceful, righteous living. God hears our prayers when we live lives that prioritize unity, compassion, forgiveness, honesty, and yes, yet again, peace. It may seem that this is repetitive, but I just want us to recognize this is not something that God wants us to take lightly. Once again, peace is not only vital to our identities, but it is vital to our righteousness as well. We cannot be truly righteous unless we are willing to be people of peace. Finally, peace is vital to our harmony. Peace is vital to our harmony. As we have seen and will continue to see, it is impossible for there to be unity if there is no peace. We cannot live in union if we breed contention, right? We must ensure we are living in God-honoring harmony because otherwise our cause as Christians is compromised and I would dare say contradicted. Paul in Romans 12 has emphasized the fact that we are one body of many members, verses four through five. He elaborates upon this theme as he writes about the love we must have for one another, being honorable, holy, hopeful, and hospitable, to add another alliteration to this, right, in verses nine through 13. But then in like mind with Peter, he echoes Jesus' command to bless those who persecute us. You may remember Matthew 5, verse 44, to pray for those who persecute you. On another note, though, he then says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep in verse 15. So the points made thus far point to us prioritizing others. That's a clear point that Paul is wanting us to understand. And doing what we can also to elevate others, and in the case of verse 14, de-escalate conflict. So with that in mind, pay attention to verses 16 through 18 especially. We are to be thinking the same toward one another, not thinking arrogant things, but accommodating yourself to the lowly. Do not be wise in your own sight, repaying no one evil for evil, giving thought to what is good in the sight of all men, and if possible, on your part, being at peace with all. 
Paul then says the Christians must not, or really the ESV says never avenge themselves, but leave vengeance to God as they seek to do good for their enemies. Verses 19 through 21. I want you to observe that verse 16 opens with an idiom. It literally is thinking the same toward one another. But it's essentially, as the ESV has it, live in harmony with one another. The point is the same in both translation choices, that Christians are to be united in thought and deed. And so in context, beautifully, those thoughts and deeds are to be out of regard for other people. We're supposed to be united and in harmony in treating other people well, and treating other people honorably. That's what this unity in this passage is especially concerning. And it especially even concerns those who wrong us. Verse 18 is, of course, clear here. Many of these passages we've talked about today are very explicit, saying that we need to be at peace with all people so far as it depends on us. There are certainly times in which others will not want peace with us at all. And in that case, we need to just do our best to pray and do good for them. However, as a teacher of mine has said, and I've stolen this phrase from him, but I always give due credit to Jim Gardner for this, just because someone has chosen to be my enemy does not mean that I have to choose to make them mine. Others may not want peace with us, but we must desire peace with them, even if it winds up being a one-sided ordeal. Paul gives us another passage to consider in Colossians 3. Christians are not supposed to live in pre-conversion behaviors, you could say. We're supposed to put off the old self, verses 5 through 11 in chapter 3 indicates to us. However, we must likewise put on the, the new self. It's not just about what we stop doing, it's about what we start doing, right? We must change how we think, how we speak, how we conduct ourselves, and many other things that were detrimental to our lives before following Christ. We're supposed to walk in a new manner. Notice especially what Paul says in verses 12 through 15. If you've been reading the bulletin, there have been some articles in there about this, and, you'll, and we'll have some reminders of what this passage is saying to us here. Therefore put on, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, compassionate affection, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another. And just as the Lord forgave you, so you also must forgive. In addition to these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful." Part of becoming a Christian is putting on peacemaking attributes, such as, again, compassion, affection, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience in verse 12. Furthermore, the, he tells us that we are to bear with and forgive one another with Christ as our example. In verse 13, we should and must always have a forgiving heart. As Jesus himself exemplified in Luke 23, 34, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. We remember those words on the cross. But we must likewise forgive when that opportunity presents itself. You see Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you 77 times in the day and says, I repent, you must forgive him, the text says. If we believe we cannot forgive, may we humble ourselves to remember how God has given us all the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins. God's forgiveness ought to inform our own. Nowhere does Paul indicate that this is easy, 
and neither do I as a lesser man claim that this is easy, but it is nonetheless God's command. Paul then says that love is the bond of perfection in verse 14, or as the ESV renders that expression, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. With this in mind, we are to let the peace of Christ, or in this case, the peace brought about by Christ, rule in our hearts. Christ purchased peace between ourselves and peace with God when he went to the cross. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16, and even earlier in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, inform us of that. But the former is of our particular interest today. These qualities that Paul discusses are geared toward peace and unity among the people of God. There is no getting around that. I'll reiterate what I said at the beginning. Peace is not optional for Christians. We must strive for it with everything that we have. May we be guided by love, love that imperfectly yet obediently mirrors the love of God. Peace, as we have seen, is absolutely vital to our harmony. Let it again be recognized that peace is vital to our identity, righteousness, and harmony. If you remember nothing else, remember those things. There can be no Christianity without peace. It is, it is entirely counter to who we are as Christian people if we are not a peaceful people. You cannot glorify God by being contentious, including when you are contending for the faith. Christians, we are commanded to be peaceable. We are commanded to be peaceful. We are commanded to be peacemakers. I really hope that this is annoying you at this point because I want it to really stick into your minds. We are commanded to be peaceful people. So let's all take a hard look at our lives. How do we talk to our families and friends, particularly when no one else is around? What kinds of posts do we make on social media? How do we conduct ourselves when discussing minor topics like sports, or at least it's minor to me, I apologize, and major issues like politics? In all things, are we glorifying God with our words and actions, or are we misrepresenting them? Are we misrepresenting God himself? I leave you those questions to ponder, because really, you're the only one who can answer those. I think all of us can do better in really perpetuating peace in our own lives, and I pray that this has been helpful for us to think about. If you are apart from God, the truth is that you can indeed have peace with him if you obey him. The gospel is very simple. You need to believe in Christ, repent of your sins, confess his name, and be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. And if you're ready to do that, or if you are a Christian that simply needs the prayers of your brethren, won't you come now? As together we stand and as we sing.